So have you ever wondered why some of your relationships are so easy and others just aren't? Have you ever wondered why your boss or your spouse or your kid or your mom or your dad is just so hard to deal with? Me too. But the good news is I've got the solution. See, I know there's been a lot of Enneagram talk lately, but OJ and I, we were having a conversation the other day about how helpful it's been for the two of us, and and we want to bring that to you. And so this morning, we're just going to go number by number through the Enneagram. We're going to knock it all out for you guys so you can fix everybody around you and make their lives better and also like your life better because they'll be better. And don't worry, I'm going to tie it all back to Jesus at the end somehow, so we're good. Now, actually, I, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that. Um, I promise to be Enneagram free, at least for the rest of this sermon. Um, I may not talk about it for the rest of the year. That'll be my gift to you. I'll, I'll be the non-Enneagram guy for the rest of the year. Um, but here's the thing. I, I was at a conference last year, last February. It was called the Youth Ministry Leadership Exchange. And they had these wonderful and amazing uh, uh, speakers at the conference. And one of them is a guy named Gerald Fediomi. And he said this. He said he said, um, your systems are perfectly designed to achieve exactly the results you're getting, good or bad. And that really, really struck me. It, it, it hit me pretty hard because I love systems. Like systems are the things that make my life work. There's a system in my life for everything because I have ADHD. And so without systems... My life is a mess. And like, I have ADHD, not in the way of people say like, oh my gosh, I'm just so ADD today. Like, it's not that kind of ADHD that I have. I have the kind that makes it hard to read uh, things, hard to retain what I read, hard to focus in conversations with people, hard to accomplish tasks, hard to, to be a good husband in, you know, in, in, in so many ways. And and I remembered, as I was thinking about this, I remembered when this really came to a head in, in our marriage. We had probably been married two or three years, and you know, it's just this constant string of Kara asking me to do something, asking me to take care of something, and me saying, yeah, yeah, I got it, I got it, I got it, and then not doing it. And, and not because I didn't want to do it, I absolutely wanted to do it. I didn't want to be paying the cable bill late. I didn't want to be forgetting to get things that I was supposed to get. I didn't want to be letting her down in this way. And when it came to a head, it came to a head like this. She looked at me and she said, you remember the stuff that you care about. It's the stuff that I care about that you don't remember. And that hurt because that's not what I wanted for my marriage. That's not what I wanted for my wife. I didn't want to be letting her down that way. And, and so that was the point when I finally started to do something about it. And, and so I went and I saw a doctor and I found out, yeah, like you have ADD. There's a reason why this is so hard for you. And, and I found a good medicine and the medicine is great. It is immensely helpful. But like more than that, more than that, I had to shift my entire paradigm, my entire way of thinking about things Quite frankly, I had to stop trusting my brain because my brain is really good at a lot of other things, but, but there's a mountain of evidence. My entire life up to that point is just a mountain of evidence that says that I can't trust my brain to remember things like what I'm going to do in the future or, 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 or what has to be accomplished. Those are not the things that my brain was designed for. And so I got really good at systems. I have systems 
for everything. As a rule, I don't lose things anymore because there is only one spot that things go. You put the thing in the spot and it's always there when you need it. And one of the things that I do here in my role at Summit through our student ministry department is, is that I oversee all of our middle and high school camps. And to do that well, it's taken a lot of systems. It's taken a lot of, of getting things so that everything is accounted for. Every part of what we do is assigned to someone, either myself or someone else on the team, and there is a list of things that have to be completed, and when that's completed, it gets checked off. For instance, last fall, we took 125 middle schoolers from across Summit here at Lake Mary, over at Waterford, and at Herndon, plus 30 connect group leaders and about a dozen or so work group team members. We took them out to Southwind for a weekend. Can you imagine the potential for chaos that that involves? Like, I'm not talking about the students. The students are fine. Like, we got that under control. It's, it's the logistics of it all, right? Like, like, tracking that many people and making sure that everything is done on time and, like, that everybody gets the right size T-shirt and that they know where their room is and, and all of that, all the forms that have to be handed in. That's the stuff that can get terrifying if you don't have the right systems in place. And maybe you're thinking, yeah, I, I don't need systems, Maybe, maybe, that, maybe that's not a thing for you, but, but I'm telling you this, even if you don't think you have systems, you've got at least a, some system in there. It may be a no system system, and maybe that works for you, but you've got a system. Because most of the time, our systems aren't things we think about. Because systems apply to more than just getting things done. That's the easy way to see them, but system, systems also show up in our relationships. Like, think about it this way. How often do you spend time with your friends? And who initiates calls when you guys plan those things out? When you, when, when you talk to a family member on the phone, do you always say, I love you at the end? Do you tend to call each other at the same time each week or on the same day? And who usually calls who? How about with your kids? Do you guys have like a bedtime routine? Is there a certain set of words that you say to each other every night? When you read the Bible and your relationship with God, do you read, do you pray, do, do you journal, or whatever it is that you do to connect with God, do you do that at the same time or in the same place? When you pray, do you use the same words? The reason that we don't notice our systems is that they become ingrained in us over time. It's a slow process. We do something that works once, and so we do it again, and we get further and further along the road to having a system ingrained in us. There are also other systems that we're not conscious of because they are handed down to us by, by our family or, or, or by mentors or things like that. You know, we, what we do uh, uh, within our family groups is that one generation passes things down to the next. And then we pass those systems on to our friends, to our family. And they go on and on and on. And, and our systems are powerful because they shape the way that we see the world. But what do you do when a system stops working? We all know that feeling, right? Like, like a, a, something that has always worked. All of a sudden, one day we realize this ain't working anymore. That's hard. And especially when it happens in a relationship, it can be hurtful. So what do you do? Do you refuse to accept it? Do you say, no, I, I don't care how much anybody else changes. I'm gonna stay the same. Whatever used to work is still gonna work and I'm just gonna stay there? Or do you accept that things are different? Do you find the new system? Do you move forward? Do you try to reshape how you see the world? 
That's the situation that Paul's speaking uh, into here in Galatians. We're going to wrap that up today. So you can read along with me in, uh, in your Bible or on your bulletin. We're starting in chapter 6, verse 11, or you can just listen along as I read. <clears throat> chapter 6, verse 11, Paul writes, See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. May I never boast, in the cro- may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. We did it. That's all he wrote. Galatians, done. And I guess if we want to get technical about it, that's, that's all he dictated. See, see, Paul, like most writers in his day, would have used a professional transcriber to write his letters. In Greek, these guys were called an amenoasis, which is really fun to say, but nowhere near as much fun to try to spell. And so back in that time, if you wanted to write a letter, you'd dictate the body of the letter to the amenoasis, and, and then when, once he was done with that, you'd take the pen and you'd sign off yourself. And that's typically where we would expect Paul to say, you know, give my best and so-and-so, hug the kids for me, grace and peace, y'all, I'm out. But that's not quite what Paul does here, is it? Now, instead, Paul goes like all caps on us. He says, see what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Now, there are commentators that say the reason that he's using large letters here is because his eyes are bad. They connect his statement there in chapter six with what he said back in chapter four uh, about being sick when he came to visit them and preach the gospel before. And what they're assuming is that the sickness that he was talking about is related to his eyes. And that it's because of this eye problem he has to write in large letters. There's no other choice. There are other commentators that believe that it's Paul's way of adding emphasis. The overly large letters, they say, are similar to how we would type in all caps or italics or make something bold. We want to draw attention to what we're writing. And there is good support for the fact that Paul had eye problems, and I definitely think it's possible that he did. However, I don't think that Paul having eye problems is mutually exclusive to him wanting to add emphasis here because the change in handwriting would have signaled the difference between what the the amenoasis had wrote and what Paul was writing. I think the fact that he draws attention to the fact that he's writing in large letters makes it pretty pretty possible, pretty plausible that what he's trying to do is point out what he's going to say. He's trying to draw attention to it. He's trying to add emphasis. Because here's the thing. Those words there, they're words we've heard before. Paul is rewriting things that have already been said. And the words that he writes... They, they amp up the emotion in a letter that's already pretty emotionally charged. It seems to me that what Paul is saying is pay attention to this. It's not new, but it is important. 
He's not offering us new theological gems here in the closing verses of Galatians. What he's doing is distilling his message down to the stuff that he wants to make sure they remember, the stuff that is so important, he wants to write it again in his own hand. See, it seems to me that what we get here in these last few verses is essentially the all caps version of Galatians. It's the whole message in bold right there for us. The reason that Paul goes all caps here is because he wants to make sure that the Galatians understand the choice that they are facing and also that they get it right. The struggle in Galatia, the choice that they're facing is between this old law-based system under Judaism and this new cross-based system that came through Christ. They've got to figure out how to reconcile those two. Now, as we look back 2,000 years, it's, it's easy to not fully appreciate what it was like back then. This is the early, early church. Jesus had died only about 15 years ago, and it's not like they just have copies of the New Testament sitting around that they can pick it up and read what Jesus did and base what they're going to do on that. This is, this is, this is a time when there aren't a whole lot of, of resources for these sorts of things. Consider this. Summit's been around about 15 years. And now imagine that 15 or so years ago when Summit started, the, the, the founding team didn't know anything about Jesus except what this traveling evangelist had come and told them. And, and they're gonna start a church based on that. And we would likely, if we were in that situation, we would be just as susceptible as they were to somebody else coming along and giving us another message that they claimed was from God. It's a scary thought. In the context of Summit, that's a scary thought. But for the Christians in Galatia, the stakes are even higher. This is the beginning of the church. What happens here isn't going to just affect them. They're laying the groundwork that the church would be built on going forward forever. And so Paul wants them to get it right because it's bigger than just them. This is the future of Christianity they're dealing with. I think that Paul is so passionate about this because he remembers the time when he didn't get it, when he didn't understand the message, when he would have been on the other side of the argument, in fact. But now he gets it, and he wants to make sure that everyone else gets it too because this Jesus thing, it changes everything. And he knows that if they integrate the old Jewish ways back into the way of the cross, it's not gonna work because, because that old way, it's gonna undermine the power of the cross. And so in these, in these verses, Paul talks about circumcision, but, but what, he's really, what he's really talking about is the old way of Judaism versus the new way of the cross. And to Paul, it's clear, and we've seen it time and time again throughout Galatians, it, the only way is Jesus plus nothing. But old systems and old paradigms that have been long ingrained and long instilled in people are at play here. And when those involve religion and institution, it's even harder to break out of those paradigms. And it'd be easy to read some sort of anti-Jesus, like pharisaical opposition into the guys that are saying, y'all gotta do this the, the Jewish way. But here's the thing, those people believed in Jesus. They believed the message but they're struggling between these two worlds. They're, they're, they're holding on to the old stuff and bringing it into the new stuff in part because they're under pressure. 
They're under pressure, the commentators say, either from the Jewish authority who's, who's looking at them and saying, hey, like you're talking about us, but like Jesus into that. And so they are pressuring them to be more Jewish. Or it could be coming from the outside, from the Roman government, who's saying like, y'all don't look like Judaism. Judaism has protection under, under, under our government. And, and if you guys aren't Jews, then that protection stops. So I don't know exactly which situation is right, but either way, the, this, this Jewishness that they're trying to maintain, it's an attempt to appease somebody. And either way, what Paul is really getting at is that coercing the Gentile converts to be circumcised is an attempt by these guys to do it the easy way. They're willing to do this because it's safer, because it's more comfortable, and it's more politically expedient to keep up appearances as Jews than it is to lay it all on the line for the cross. What they're doing is going along to get along. Now, you guys might be holier than I am, and so maybe you don't feel this way when you read the text, but like, I get that impulse to cave to pressure. There have been too many times when I look back on, on my Christian witness when I've chosen the path of least resistance. I've decided to just go along to get along so that I don't offend anyone or I don't rock the boat. You know, I remember Kaylee Newkirk saying one time that uh, she was the reason people thought Christians were weird. And I think she's probably right. But I am so well acquainted with how weird I am that I've kind of felt like I'm doing God a favor by not talking about him to other people. I don't, I don't wanna claim that title from her. And so that's one way we do it. We don't talk about Christ when we could uh, to, to minister to other people, to tell them about him, but it's also in the jokes that we laugh at. It's in the way that we allow other people to be treated. All the times that we keep our mouth shut, whatever the reason, because we're afraid of what it would cost us to speak up. We diminish the power of the cross by acting less religious for the sake of keeping the peace. We go along to get along. But that's not actually what Paul is talking about in this situation. He's actually calling out the opposite. See, the, these Judaizers, these guys who want everyone to be circumcised, they're actually trying to force people to be more holy. They want the Gentiles to look more religious. So what this is really about is the times when I try to make myself look like a better Christian to church people so that they'll think good things about me. It's about the times when we don't ask for prayer even though we're struggling and we need it. It's about the times that we stretch the truth about our devotional habits. It's about all the times when we hide our brokenness and, and our imperfections to appear more holy to other people. When we do that, we're still diminishing the power of the cross. You know, both are attempts to avoid persecution, whether it's at the hands of non-Christians or the Christians in our lives. And either way, it's just going along to get along. And the reason that Paul is railing against these Judaizers for going along to get along is because the choice isn't neutral. If it were, it'd be no big deal. But their attempts to avoid persecution come at the expense of the Gentile converts. And yeah, I mean, that's the expense uh, of the people getting circumcised and, and then having to keep the Jewish law because they're declaring that they are Jewish people. But what's worse is that it comes at the expense of the life of freedom that God was offering them through the Spirit. 
And so before Paul drops the letter in the mail, he wants to be absolutely clear what's at stake in this choice between the old way and the new way. It's kind of like when our daughter Kate was a little bit younger. She's seven now, but when she was a little bit younger, she'd come and she'd ask what, what could seem like an innocent question. Daddy, can I, can I borrow the scissors? Now, if you spend any time at all around a young kid, you know, you know that scissors are not neutral. And they go from tools of creativity to implements of destruction in a heartbeat. You know, the best of her intentions could be the worst of outcomes for the hair of her dolls or, or for her clothes, that's a real story, uh, or for our furniture accidentally while something else was being cut in close proximity. Scissors are not neutral and neither is this choice between the old and the new. And while these guys are trying to obscure their connection to Jesus and the cross uh, in order to protect themselves, Paul, Paul gloried in it. In verse 14, he says, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What we see there is may I never, is that term that I talked about a few, uh, a few weeks ago, meganoito. It is the most emphatically negative way to say something in Greek. It carries the weight of, of something that is so absolutely absurd it can't be considered a legitimate possibility. What Paul is saying here is that it is absolutely absurd for me to consider that there could be a day when I would boast in something other than the cross. Why? Because Paul knows that Calvary was the turning point of history. Calvary was the place where the old world with the old order was sentenced to death and crucified so the new world could be born out of the old. And Calvary was the place where the old Paul was sentenced to death and crucified so the new Paul could be born out of the old. And it is the exact same for the Galatians and it is the exact same for you and me. And Paul wants to make sure that we get that through the gift that Christ gave us by going to the cross. Both circumcision and uncircumcision are meaningless because they are part of a past paradigm, one that Paul has told us already in the letter was intended only to be temporary anyway. Everything has been made new through the resurrection of Jesus. The only thing that counts now is the new creation. So what do we, what do, we do? What do we mean when we say a new creation. I think there's two ways that Paul is talking about this. There's two ways to understand it. Paul is telling us to become a new creation individually and that we are supposed to participate in the new creation corporately. And when I think about what it means to become a new creation, I, I go to another letter of Paul's. His words in 2 Corinthians 5.17 is what pops into my head where he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. We are no longer who we were. The new creation began at the moment of the resurrection. And it continues in our spirit-filled life, the life that wells up inside everyone who belongs to the Messiah. And that is a beautiful thing. But that doesn't mean that it's easy. 
Recently, I was talking with Jeff Kern. He's one of the pastors here at Summit, and, and he was explaining uh, this leadership concept to me, and, and he mentioned uh, that it came from Stephen Covey's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And, and you know, I had actually bought that book uh, probably a year or so ago, and it had been sitting on my shelf. See, I'd heard Jeff talk about it before and how awesome it was and the impact that it could have, and I had bought it and I'd set it on the shelf where it was doing me absolutely no good because I hadn't read it. So after this conversation with Jeff, I decided maybe it's time to pick that book up and see what it actually says inside. And, and so I did. And, and it was crazy to me right off the bat how what Covey was saying lined up with what Paul was saying. Because early on in Seven Habits, Covey starts talking about why his book is different than other self-help books, other business success books. And he turned, it turns out the difference is whether you're looking to just master a new technique to achieve better results or if you actually want to grow. Actual growth, he says, is harder than learning a new technique because actual growth requires more from you. You can't grow just by changing something that you do. You've got to change your paradigm. He uses the metaphor of vision, and what he says is this. The improved technique approach, it's about doing something different with what we see out, out there. The new paradigm approach is about changing how we see things. That's why what these Judaizers are trying to do won't work. The new paradigm approach requires that you actually change how you see things. You know, the cross isn't just another technique to be applied in pursuit of holiness. The cross changes everything. And it's not God's way of asking you to try harder or be a better person, a more successful person. It's an invitation to be a new person, a new creation whose life is permeated by God's grace. So living as a new creation, that means that we stop doing it on our own. It means that we stop trusting that we can fix ourselves. It means that we stop trusting how well we can do things to count toward our righteousness. It's, it means that we stop indulging that part of us that thinks that we can earn our way in to some extent. And living uh, as a new creation totally different approach. And it's not that godly living is unimportant. It's that no matter how goodly you live, there's no godly living without the strength that only God supplies. And God supplies it only to those who put their trust in the Savior rather than themselves. No matter how good you get at your religious skills, that wouldn't be enough because not breaking the law isn't identical to obeying the will of God. You can do everything perfectly and miss the will of God entirely. The cross isn't about changing what you're doing. The cross is about changing who you are. You've got to let it change who you are. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to be transformed into a new creation? So that's one way of looking at this. And honestly, that is the way that we are most accustomed in, in, the, in, in the evangelical church to understanding it, being transformed individually into a new creation. But it's incomplete. Because when you take verse 615, where it says neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, what counts is a new creation, and you set it alongside what Paul says in verse 5-6, 
For in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. It seems clear that this new creation thing has something to do with faith expressing itself through love. Jesus was reconciling us to himself, not only as individuals, but also as his family. This becomes more, uh, even more apparent when we look at verse 16, where it says, peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. Through Christ, we're made into a new creation individually and the new creation corporately. In 328, uh, verse 328 of Galatians, Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The sacrifice that he made on the cross, the thing that changed everything, was for each of us, but also for all of us. Together, we are members of Abraham's family. We're citizens of the true Israel of God, his chosen people. And that's the only thing that matters. Living as a new creation, it means that things are different than they were under the old way. Faith expressing itself through love, it requires that we search out and break down the boundaries that we've created either intentionally or unintentionally that get in the way of us living out this part of Jesus's teaching. It requires that we reach out to those who are different than us so that they get to hear that God loves them. It requires that we remember that we don't need to become exactly the same to be a part of the new creation because ethnicity no longer has any meaning in terms of a person's acceptance. Everybody's welcome at the table. The new creation, it seems to me, is a place of hospitality. I heard this definition of hospitality recently as, as inviting outsiders to gain the privileges that only come to insiders and to share the love of God with those who do not have the standing to expect it. I was hit hard by that definition because it is so broad, it is so broad, but it is also the most accurate reflection that I can think of, of how we can reflect Christ's love to the world around us. Think about it. When we were estranged from God, when we were his enemies, Christ died for us. That gift, that act of hospitality, it came at a cost. The son of God had to suffer and die so that we could have a place at God's table once again. The new creation is a place of openness and invitation. And in these eight verses, I think what we've seen is that Paul has condensed his letter down to its most basic form. And it seems to me as I've read this through a few times getting ready for, for this sermon that there is an inherent question underlying those verses and really the whole letter. I think Paul's asking, how could anyone who has glimpsed Jesus as the crucified Messiah still wanna cling to a set of values, a, a set of symbols and a way of life that's already been declared dead on the cross? And I know that Paul is writing that to Jewish Christians in these churches of Galatia, uh, but it applies to us too. You know, the question to us is what are the values? What are the symbols? What is the way of life that we are clinging to? And is it any less dead than the ones that he was speaking against 2,000 years ago. 
Is there any more sense in our resistance to change than theirs? Are you ready to stop trying to add Jesus into what you're doing and give yourself fully to being made into a new creation? Now, if you've never done that before, now is a wonderful time to do that. And if you have done it before, the question is this, where in your life do you need to be made new? This isn't a one-time event. This is a constant, ongoing process. God makes us new every day, little by little. It is hard, but it's worth it. What is it that God is calling you to surrender to him? Where is he calling you to trust him more fully? Are you ready to be about the work of building the new creation by inviting to the table those who are different than you. Let's pray.